Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of So How'd You Get Here? Uh, I'm Angelo. And I'm Tony. And uh, if you're just tuning in for the first time, this is a podcast where we dive into backstories. We like to peek behind the curtain and uh, kind of see some of the details that uh, got people to where they are if they got there, uh, what got them interested in what they do in their area of expertise, and kind of pull a little bit of wisdom out uh, from their stories. Uh, so today I have... Um, a writer, co-producer. He is, um, he's produced several, hun- what is it, 200 hours, I want to say like that. Pretty close, TV, pretty close. Right? Yeah. right, you've got syndicated stuff. You teach at USC, he's a professor in the cinematic arts. Um, I'd like to introduce Mr. David Balkin. Thank you for coming to the show today, sir. Well, I thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I must say, uh, after listening to that introduction, um, <laughs> if I didn't know what a schlemiel I really am, I would have been very, very impressed with that. Uh, you left out the fact that I, I also do naked juggling. Naked juggling. Naked um, juggling. This, yes. this is that's just how you got started in the <laughs> yes. business. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's yes. what I'm, I'm hoping that those wonderful people who listen to this will take that advice to yeah. heart, strip off their clothes, and grab something to start tossing in the air. We're going to make this just an audio podcast this I, week. We're going to probably drop the video part of that I, out. Yeah, that may be a wise choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just to just keep yeah. it easy yeah, for them. I, I would do it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so David's oh, coming to us all the way via Connecticut, which I'm from Connecticut, and that was our initial connection. He's a new friend, but I hope he's going to be a lifelong friend now. Which I as well. Yeah. Um, we want yeah, we want to dive right in. So born and raised in Connecticut, I believe West Hartford. West Hartford, Connecticut, that's correct. And went to Conard High School. Oh yeah, West Hartford. Conard. Was president of my high school. Um, my he's ever, already he's already bragging. Yeah, well yeah. No, I mean this is showbiz. Yeah, I mean, how many people went to this high school? Like seven? Uh hundred yeah, day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um and uh interested what, interested in entertainment at that time or you know that's a question that's often asked to me, and more often than not, what's asked is, did you always want to be a writer? Because right. in terms of how people know me, they know me from having achieved whatever I've achieved through writing. The honest answer is no. I did not have this burning desire to be a writer. And it wasn't until really a lot later on when I was pretty much ensconced in the business that I realized that what I am, truly, what's mm-hmm. in my DNA, is that I'm a storyteller. Mm. And I've been a storyteller in many, many ways as a writer. Obviously, I've done voiceovers. Um, I'm a member of SAG and AFTRA. Um, I've performed a, a CD. I've done a, a cabaret. Um, oh, wow. But that, that might have been the juggling part. I don't know. But, but well, <laughs> that was mostly seeing. I tried to do the juggling. I got as far as unbuttoning my shirt, yeah. and they said, keep it on, keep it on. So that was the, that was the chant from the yeah, audience. That was, yeah, that was pretty much the end of that. But, but I'm a storyteller, and I think that most of us, if not all of us, are. And one might ask, well, why would you make a blanket statement like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a pretty presumptuous right. thing to say. We're all storytellers. But the fact of the matter is, if you look back through human history, and if you go way back, I mean way, way back to the beginning, I'm talking about 30,000, 40,000 years ago when our ancestors were just figuring out how to walk standing up on two legs. After a 
miserable day of just surviving. I mean, you think you have problems. I mean, this was trying to avoid being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger right. or eaten by some of your neighbors. <laughs> and they would, they would come back to their caves. They didn't have an oral language. They certainly didn't have a written language. And what would they do? They would draw pictures on the walls of their caves. What was it that told them it was a compulsion within them to do that? It had to be the need to say, this is who I am. This is where I've been. This is what my experience is. And I want you to know it. So I think that essentially we're all storytellers. You're in a bar or a restaurant. You tell a joke to a friend. You're a storyteller. Yeah. Um, you talk about a rumor that you've heard. You're a storyteller. Some of us leave it at that. Others take it and turn it into an art form. And that's something that I obviously chose and to do. And when, when, um, when did some of that dawn on you? Like, when, when did it start to become a... When did it go from, oh, I just tell stories to my friends to I want to take that farther for you? Was there a moment, or did it just happen slowly over time? Was there... I was always in love with um, the entertainers of my time. Mm. I loved movies. There was nothing better than going to a, a matinee, sitting in a dark theater, watching a screen that was, I don't know, 30 feet high and, and you know probably 45 feet wide, and seeing these incredible, bigger-than-life characters yeah. doing things. And my imagination just went wild, and I wanted to do that. Actually, what I really wanted to do, because I am a ham, I wanted to, I wanted to act. I wanted to perform. I mean, the joke in our house is I go home, I open the refrigerator, the light comes on, I do 20 minutes <laughs> right away. <laughs> Hello, lamb chops. You know, I, does, I, don't, I will go into a department store and do shtick with a mannequin. I don't care. You know? God, are you my father? I, <laughs> I could be, son. And, and that's something, that's the real reason why I well, wanted to come here today. To an, so, you know, uh, to answer your question, it's what ultimately, and we'll get into that, pushed me to go from Connecticut to Los Angeles when really and truly, rationally speaking, there was no reason for me to do it. It mm. didn't make any sense right. at all. Um, and yet it was a hunger, a thirst, a drive. I wanted to be, as I said, a performer, an actor. And, and I'm, over the years I have gotten to do that. But um, in, the, in the name of transparency... Uh, so that there are no secrets. I have a obvious disability. I had polio when I was an infant, and I've walked with canes, and I have a, a very noticeable limp. So I, I realized, even after I'd gotten into some very prestigious acting workshops, that the kinds of roles I would get would not be the kinds of roles that I thought I was suited for. I was going to be the dashing guy. I was right. going to be the male lead. I was going to get the girl. I wasn't going to be someone's sidekick or pity story. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started writing because I could be anybody I wanted to be. Wow. All I had to do was write that person. So how many that's roles amazing. have you written for yourself? Probably all of them. <laughs> yeah. 
We do the really same thing. We do, the, we same. do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I say this. Angel's a 6'10 basketball player in every movie well, he writes. I'm also good at math in <laughs> every script. Yeah, and, that's, um, that's, I speak eight languages. Yes, that's... Well, like and, a normal and, person. And, and a very dashing fellow. I'll say yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm I mean, incredibly humble yes, in every I've, role. I've noticed that about you <laughs> immediately. Um, I mean, that's one of the wonders of this business, that hmm. because essentially what you're selling is a bubble. You know, it's something you're making up. And the tacit agreement, even if it's unspoken, is that if I do a good job in creating this, your obligation is to believe it. Mm. And once you believe it, then we are in a separate time warp. We're in a separate world that has come from the imagination has come from the need to create another universe, mm -hmm. another existence. So going back to the Connecticut days, because I don't know how you were raised, but my family wasn't very artsy. And I didn't realize until older, until I got older, that I was so close to like Yale and the Schubert and like the Long Wharf Theater. Like there was a lot in this like 10 mile radius that I was not, I guess, awakened to until I got older. And then, so you left Connor and you went to UConn. Correct. Majored in film? Or did they have no, a film program? I, I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a film school. Okay. I mean, this is, you know, this is a long time ago. And I was an English major. Um, I majored in uh, uh, authors and novels of the 20th century. Um, and I did that because if I was going to read, I wanted to read something that I was interested in. And, uh, and what did you think that career path would be after that, like teaching? Or no. You, no. I, I, I just had these amorphous dreams and fantasies. I would, I would go into New York every chance that I right. had, and I, and I would go to different night spots, and I would hang out at the Village Gate and, and the Village Vanguard and, and uh, upstairs at the downstairs, and all of these places I would look at. I would watch these young comics and... And I would go listen to cabaret singers, and um, and I would sing. And I, not there, but you know, I I took voice lessons. Right. It was just it was answering a call that I didn't really understand. It mm -hmm. was as if it was as if something, the universe, God, a spirit, whatever, however you define it, was calling to me in a language that I didn't quite understand but I couldn't stop listening to it, and I followed it. And that's what brought you from Connecticut to Los Angeles, a, ca a calling, like something you had to kind of figure out for yourself? That and desperation. I, wow. I, I was working. The trajectory of my career was that after I graduated from um, UConn, and I, I really wanted to do the things that I ultimately did do, but to get to what you just said about your family. My family was a very traditional, right. middle, upper, middle class Jewish family. And showbiz, what? Are you crazy? <laughs> you want to do showbiz? You be a lawyer. But, but be a dentist, be an accountant, have some <laughs> stability in your life. I showbiz, you'll be a bum. You want to be a bum? So it wasn't as if. So I, that was your mom's pep talk? Yeah, that was. Uh, <laughs> Love that, it. That very loving. We very, all got the same yeah, pep talk, by very, the way. Very nurtured. Well, they're in a club together. <laughs> yeah. You know, they call each other. So what did you say? I told him he was going to be a bum. That's good. I'll use that. Oh, right, 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 right. And so that's what they did. You know, I, I, 
my dad wanted the best for me. I'm sure he did. Sure, sure, sure. But he was a victim of his culture. He was a victim of his generation. I mean, this was Hartford, West Hartford, Connecticut. This wasn't the center of entertainment. Right. And what he appreciated, because he was part of a depression... Uh, uh, Era. Yeah, Yeah. generation. He appreciated success. If you could talk about a star, somebody that had his or her own television show that was making a lot of money, that was making movies, that made sense. That was understandable. But to be struggling, to be constantly hearing rejections, mm-hmm. why do that? Yeah. Why, why put yourself through it? Anyway, what happened was I ultimately gravitated toward advertising. And I was working in New York. If, if you saw... And you are, what, 20, 20, 22? Yeah, about... Yeah, about 24 okay. by this okay. time. Okay. And, you know, if you saw Mad Men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I worked on Addis- Madison Avenue. I mean, I it was a, a decade later than when that show took place. Right. But but it was, it was that world. And one day I just realized I don't care about selling toothpaste. I don't care about selling floor wax. I just, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And as it turned out, whether it was fate or whether it was divine intervention, I'm not sure. But I lost my job because there was a recession and companies were cutting back on their advertising budget. And this advertising agency, which was a kind of boutique agency, it didn't have many people working for it. They had to let people go. Yeah. I was one of the youngest, one of the newest. So I was on the street. Is this early 70s? Yeah. Okay. Early 70s. Okay. And... I would go into uh, New York, and I would try to get a job. I would go on these interviews because the personnel or or um, or what's called what do they call themselves now? Um, H- uh, human resources. Human resources. Yeah, yeah. Um, they still wanted their jobs, so they would have these bogus interviews for jobs to look that busy didn't, that didn't exist. Right. Yeah. So I I was married to my first wife at the time. And I said to her, because I knew I was going in to apply for a job that didn't exist. And I said, um, I said, I'm not going to get this job. I don't even think there is a job. I'm going to go in. I'm going to do the whole interview. Juggling. Naked. <laughs> Naked. And they hired and you I on think, the spot. I think they'll remember me. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do it as Marlon Brando. She said, you are not. Marlon Brando streetcar? Like, which Marlon Brando? <laughs> well, you know, it's just going to talk like this. Oh. So the Godfather. So it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, cool. But at a time in my life when. Scratcher. Scratcher. There it is. I was much younger than I am. <laughs> she said, you're not going to do that. I said, I am. She said, come on. That's ridiculous. I would, I hire, said, I would have hired you in a second. On the spot. <laughs> I said, no, I'm, I'm really. She said, I'll bet. This was, this was as bogus as going for the job because we didn't have any money. Right. She said, I'll bet you $1,000. I said, you're on. First of all, you don't have $1,000. We don't have a, yeah. neither she nor I. <laughs> in Monopoly a, money? In, yeah, right. <laughs> and and be long before Bitcoins. Copy we, you. we had, as they say in Yiddish, garnished, which is nothing. We had nothing. But I said, I'll, I'll do this. All right. So I go in for this interview, and I'm showing my portfolio, or as we called it, my book. And the guy was looking at it, and 
he said, I'm really quite impressed with uh, some of the ads that, that you've done because they were all mock-up um, ads that I, that I was doing. And I said, uh, well, you know, I appreciate that because I've spent a lot of time working on this. And uh, I don't know, but creativity, uh, you know, just doesn't walk through the door. Sometimes you have to beckon it, and uh, I'm pretty good at beckoning uh, this kind of stuff. Anyway, I spent the whole interview talking like this. Before I left, he said, you know, now I, to this day, I don't know whether he was putting me on or I had put him on. Right. But he said, um, I have to ask you this because uh, I couldn't help but notice you you have a very unique voice. Um, when you were in college, did you major in speech? And I said, you know, most people don't pick up on that, but uh, you're obviously a very, very bright man. <laughs> and uh, I do appreciate you saying that. shoveling it on. And I left. Now, I might have walked out, and he might have said, speech my ass. Right. Or he might have bought it. I don't know. But I walked through the door when I got home, and I said... Like a to, mensch. To my, like a mensch, like a partner. Amen. And I said, you owe me $1,000. Yes. But anyway, what happened was, that brought me out here, it was probably desperation. It was desperation, and it was a belief that if I didn't do it now, at that point in time in my life, we didn't have children. Um, I didn't have another job that I was leaving. Right. We didn't own a home. If I didn't do it then, while I was still young and still had, chronologically, a future ahead of me, mm -hmm. Then when? If not now, then when? Yeah. And so I came out w here. Was she supportive of that? She was. Okay. And she was, and I don't know that I would have done it without her because I certainly wasn't going to get that kind of enthusiasm mm -hmm. from my family. Right. I did get it from friends, people that knew me as a contemporary, as, as a, you know, as a friend who believed in me, but Certainly not my parents and or my parent, my mom. Well, they wanted the best for you. And they did. They just didn't understand. If, and right. I don't blame them. No. I mean, I've been in this business directly and tangentially now for, what, 40 years? And I don't know if I completely understand it. Right. It is a very mercurial, mm -hmm. very amorphous, quixotic, mm -hmm. undefinable business. And the only thing that justifies it, in my opinion, you have to say to yourself, is there anything else in life that I would rather do that could make me happy? Because if there is, you should go do, do that. Then do it. Right. Do right. it. You know, if if you're looking for security, don't do it. If you're looking for constant applause and a confirmation of how wonderful you are, don't do it. It's a business, as I said, fraught with disappointment. But if it's the thing that you need, yeah. As much as you need to breathe oxygen or to eat or to drink to stay alive, then that's your pathway. And so I came out here knowing no one, having $750 to my name, not having a job of any kind. And um, I took this prophetic drive down Sunset Boulevard, which 
for those who have never been to Los Angeles. We we drove we drove out here, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah, in an old Carmen Ghia. And we shipped Oof, the with no AC. With no AC. And let me tell you, Texas is one mother long state <laughs> to drive through in the summer without AC. Um anyway, I was out here and, and I drove to down sunset to the ocean. And and then I started up PCH in a kind of aimless way. I mean, again, I, I didn't have... For those listeners, going up PCH, is, you're going towards Malibu. That's correct. Okay. And I, I didn't have a mission statement. I didn't have a, a business plan. I don't know what I had except a dream, just a dream. And there, were, there are a series of parking lots off to the side of PCH that abut up to the beaches and then beyond the beaches, of course, the ocean. Yeah. And I pulled into one of those parking lots and I pulled into a parking space and I got out of my car and I turned with my back to the ocean and I looked up at the skyline of Santa Monica, which you could see, mm -hmm. and you could see a bit of the skyline of downtown L.A., and, again, being a very dramatic, theatrical person, which I am, I said, probably aloud. In your Marlon Brando voice. Yeah. I, no, I, I said it in, in my deepest baritone. Okay. I said, well, Balkan, you've got your back to the ocean. There's no retreat. This is it. This is where you make your stand. And I got back in my car, and I drove back up Sunset to begin. I swear it happened just that way. And what was the, um, what, where'd you land? Like, what was the first apartment, house, what, what, what sub-city? And then what was the first job? First apartment that we had, and the only reason we, we took it was because they allowed pets, and we had shipped our Great Dane, Arthur, Arthur the Great Dane. So, you um, mean you didn't fit him in the in, car, in the car on the ride yeah. over? Oddly enough, no. There wasn't room? And no. And That's when, so weird. And when, when Arthur got out of his crate after he had been, you know, on, on this plane, uh, he managed to, well, he would have given me the finger if he had fingers. <laughs> so he gave me the paw. I mean, that's, that's what he did. He was not a happy camper. Anyway, it was, uh, it was on Ovada Place, 11361 Ovada Place in Bel Air, just off Sepulveda. Oh, you swung so, for the fence. So Bel Air at the time, at the time, with seven hundred fifty dollars to your name, was yeah. pretty. Yeah, I seriously, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I had, there was no rational sense whatsoever right. to make the choices that I made. But to answer your question as to where did I land first, I tell this story often to uh, to young people who ask me the seminal question, which is, how did you get started? Yeah. And I preface it by saying, you know, when you're young and you're stupid, it can be a great advantage because you're too dumb to know how ridiculous it is mm -hmm. to do what you're doing. Right. So I'm looking at Time magazine, and on the cover of Time is a picture of Norman Lear. And I start to read a little bit about Norman Lear, and I, I knew about Norman Lear. All in the Family was the top-rated show in the country at that time. And it had broken all of the rules of television. It talked about all kinds of things that heretofore television, which was advertiser-controlled right. and very, very cautious, you couldn't talk about. It. You couldn't say the word pregnant. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't talk about 
homophobia. You couldn't talk about racism. You couldn't talk about sexual abuse. You, these were verboten. It was, yeah. it was like you were living in a... Detergent commercial. Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> you could talk about those, those tough scrapes that are difficult to get off your linoleum floor. That's what you could talk about. <laughs> but Norman broke all of those rules. And his show was an immediate success. So I'm reading this article, and it says that he came from Connecticut, that for a while he lived in Hartford. He went to Weaver High School. Yeah. My mother went to Weaver High School. The Weaver Beavers. Right. Yeah. Is um, that a real thing? Did yeah. you just make that up? No, that's real, real oh. school. Okay. Um, my mother went to Weaver. Norman Lear is Jewish. I'm Jewish. Hartford, Hartford. I thought... Checking all the boxes. There it is. <laughs> We're friends. There it is. That's... It's the universe saying, you got to reach out to Norman Lear. So I pick up the phone. You did not. Oh, I did. All right. I did. I'm interested. Continue. I pick <laughs> up the phone, and I call Tandem Productions, which is Norman Lear's company. And the receptionist answers, hello, this is Tandem Productions. And I said, hello, my name is David Balkan. I'm a writer from New York. Well, I was kind of a writer, and I was kind what? of from New York. And uh, I've got great ideas for All in the Family, and I'd like to speak with Mr. Lear. She said, just a minute, please. And uh, then a woman gets on the phone. She said, Mr. Lear's office. And I go through the same spiel. Right. She said, just a minute, please. And then a man gets on the phone. He says, hello. And I said, hello, is this Mr. Lear? And he said, yes. He said, Okay, uh, well, uh, I'm David Balkan, I'm a writer, and uh, I'm fresh out here from New York, and I've got great ideas for all in the family. I know these people. I know Archie Bunker. Right. My dad is Archie Bunker. I grew up with these people. I've got great ideas for your show. I get your show. There's a pause, and he says, okay, when do you want to come in? And I said, well, um, when do you want me to come in? He said, can you come in tomorrow at 10 o'clock? I said, yeah. He said, oh, you know where we are? I said, yes. I sort of knew where they right. were. You'll um, figure it out. <laughs> and I hung up the phone. And he said, I'll see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow. I said, great, thank you. I hung up the phone. And it very quickly occurred to me that I didn't have a single idea for all in the family. <laughs> I, I, I had nothing. I had zero. Because who knew that it would get this far? I mean, I just, you know, I picked up the phone. Well, I stayed up till around 4 o'clock in the morning. And I, I worked out five, which I thought were pretty good ideas for all in the family concepts. And the next morning, I showered. Is this like yellow legal pad? Yeah. Like writing everything Bic, down? Big ballpoint right, pen. Right, okay. I mean, that world. Yeah. There was no internet. Right. There were no smartphones. Yeah. There was no Wi-Fi. I mean, this was, I mean... If I went back any earlier in time, I would have chiseled a on a chisel <laughs> and, and ding, stone ding, ding. tablets. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, I show up the next day. Um, he's on the phone talking to somebody. His uh, assistant says, you know, just wait a few minutes and he'll be right with you. And uh, a few moments later, I'm shown into the office. He's very nice, but very businesslike. You know, we made the perfunctory small talk mm -hmm. did, did you have any trouble finding us how was the drive over blah 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 so you're from connecticut yada 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 um from new york and then you know connecticut um he said okay kid 
And back then I was a kid. Right. I said, okay, kid, what have you got? So I pitched him the first concept that I had. And he stopped and he nodded his head and he said, you know, I like that. We'll buy it. Shut up. <laughs> you, and, and you didn't I even said, get to the other four. No. I said, <laughs> I must have said something like, you will. Yeah. He said, yeah. He said, um, we, need to, we need to talk to your agent. Who's your agent? Now, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have. Yeah, credit. we got that part. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't have credits. Yeah. I was not a member of the Writers Guild. The only person that I had met was a physical therapist and his wife, and he lived next door to an agent, to a literary agent. So I figure, he'll represent. Can, yeah. Can I use whatever language I want? Of course. Of course. Okay. So I figure, fuck it. Yeah. I'm in it now. I may as well go for broke. So. I said, well, it's Mark Lickman of Shapiro Lickman. I had never met Mark Lickman. Mark Lickman didn't know who I was. But it was the only name that I... He was about to get a commission. Up. He's going to know right. you now. <laughs> so Lear tells the dealmaker to, to get my quotes. The dealmaker goes out of the room. He comes back in. He whispers something to Norman. Norman says, well, David, we checked with the Writers Guild. And... Uh, you don't have any quotes because you're not a member of the Writers Guild. Um, and uh, you don't have any, apparently don't have any credits either. Um, but we are going to call your agent and we're going to make a deal, but it's going to be scale. It's going to be a lowball deal because yeah. you don't have anything else. And I said, okay. So he calls Lickman, or the deal maker does. And then a short while later, the deal maker comes in and says, I'm really sorry, but we can't make the deal with you. And I said, well, why not? He said, well, we called your agent and we told him what we were offering, which was scale. And he said, that's insulting. Call me back with a legitimate offer. And he hung up on me. Okay. I said, okay. I said, so someone you've never met and doesn't rep you is fighting for you. Right. To well, recap for right, the audience. Yes. Right. But what I What's left, it like to be God's favorite? What, what <laughs> I left out was when, when the deal maker called and said, I'm calling from Tandem Productions. And of course, Lickman knew who he was and all of that because Norman Lear was a real player. Yeah. And said, we're with one of your clients. So Lickman being an agent and agents being the bottom feeders that they are said david balkan my favorite client we have <laughs> we love him he is such a talented guy he and then a, he's like who, who's like, david yeah, do, who's do, we, david? do we know david balkan <laughs> anyway and so he, he hangs up on him and i asked if i could please use the phone and i call lickman and i said mark this is david balkan make the deal which they did and that was how I got into the Writers Guild. That was how I got my first credit. There's so you went in seventy-two hours from yeah from a from a from a speech at the beach to, to represented it. Yeah, in the I, WGA. I think I think it probably took a little bit more than that. Probably a week, week and a half. Oh, oh. well, I mean, I mean, why know. why are you taking it so slow? Yeah, well, I was I was shy. I was slow. I did. It's very know. humble of you. Yeah, that, that's me. So we make the deal. And I'm so excited. I'm just so, I'm bursting with excitement and enthusiasm. And I've got to tell somebody right away. And this is, again, before cell phones. So 
I'm in this elevator. His offices at that time were in Century City in one of the tall towers Mm -hmm. on like the 30th floor. It's around lunchtime. Now, I get into the elevator and it's crowded with people that are going to lunch. And I'm standing in this crowded elevator. I I just sold a show. Yeah. I turned around and I looked at these people and I said, look, I I know you don't know me and this probably won't mean anything to you, but I've got to tell somebody. I just sold a story to all in the family. They applauded for 30 floors all the way down to the lobby. And years later, like 20, 25 years later, after you know, a reasonably distinguished career. I'm receiving an award from the Writers Guild, I and several other people. And it was a big, big event, and it was held at the Beverly Hilton. And Norman Lear was there as one of the presenters. And I gave a speech. Oh, prior to that, I I was in the green room, and I was I was there, and Lear was there. And I went up to him very timidly, not, not the brash young kid mm. that I was 20, 25 years earlier. And I said, you probably don't remember me, but, and I recounted the story. And I don't think he remembered me, but he was very kind, very polite. We shook hands. Anyway, I gave this acceptance speech, and the speech went over quite well. Um, and he stood up, and he gave me a standing ovation. And when he stood up, everybody else stood up, and the... Dan Petrie, who at that time was president of the Writers Guild, said, I've never seen Norman Lear stand for another writer. You must have really impressed him. And, and subsequently to that, I called Lear. This time he did know who I was. And we started going out to, to lunch together. And he regaled me with just these incredible stories of old Hollywood and how he got his start and some of the things that he went through. And really, truly, just a gentleman Mm. in every sense of the word. And at 98 years old, he's still out there. He's still doing it. That's amazing. And he's looking forward to his 100th birthday. Yeah. We need to call him and pitch a few things then. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mention my name. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Right. (laughs) Oh, man. And mention Mark Lichtman's name. He'll represent you. Okay. Mark will still represent us. Yeah. I want to go back to something that preceded that in New York, and it preceded advertising. And I think I've set the stage so that your listeners will understand this. And really what it comes down to is realizing that there are moments in each of our lives, all of us, where we are confronted or cross paths with inspiration. Most people shy away from it because it's very intimidating. It's scary. And they choose not to mm-hmm. answer that call. But those of us that do, oftentimes, it can turn your life around. Before I got the job in advertising, and I wanted, I just wanted, I wanted to make my dad happy. And I wanted to do something that was televisual, cinematic. So I went into New York a lot. And I was applying for jobs in broadcast journalism. I had been, as I already mentioned, an English major and from a very 
respected university. Mm -hmm. So I used to make the rounds. I would go to NBC, CBS, ABC. I don't even think Fox was a network at that point in time. But there were cobbled together uh, uh, stations across the Westinghouse Broadcasting and, and others that had a bunch of stations throughout the country. And I went to all of them, and I would drop off my resume. And I would be told at every one, I'm sorry, there's no opening. I'm sorry, there's no opening. I would take the train or drive into New York two, three times a week. And it got to be very discouraging. And I desperately wanted a job. And I wanted a job doing something that I could build a career Mm -hmm. on. Well, one day I'm in New York, and it's pouring rain, and it's probably late fall, and it's cold, and it's wet, and I don't have a raincoat, and I didn't bring an umbrella, and I'm soaking wet, and a bus or a taxi drives up the street. I was standing on Avenue of the Americas, and all of the gutters were filled with water, and this vehicle drives through, sprays me with water. I mean, if there was ever a cinematic moment of utter and complete defeat and dejection, it was that moment. I turned around, and I look, and I'm standing in front of what was called Black Rock, which was the corporate offices of CBS. Mm. And it's this huge, black, imposing building. And I just wanted to get the hell out of the rain. So I went into CBS. Now, the only place that I knew of in CBS was the personnel department because I had been there so often. So, I, And all I wanted to do was dry off. So I get in the elevator, and I go up to the personnel office, and I walk in, and I'm standing there. Probably the water is streaming off of me. I'm probably creating a, a, puddle. a puddle the size of the Red Sea in, in, in their office. And this um, young lady receptionist i remember i remember her as very pretty and very very sweet and she recognized me because i had been in so many times and she looked at me and i looked so forlorn and she said without me saying anything she said um david i'm sorry there just isn't any opening i said um you know i cannot believe that in a multinational company as large as CBS there isn't one single starting position anywhere in the world for someone like me I'm going to go over to that sofa and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to wait for that opening to happen and I walked over and I sat down on the sofa and she looked at me and there was this moment of humanity. And she said, just a second. Yeah. She picked up the phone, and she called somebody in one of the upper offices, and she w- said, there's this young man here. He so desperately wants to work here. He comes in two, three times a week. Can't you just see him? And it must have been a slow day, or the gods were smiling on me. But the guy said, apparently, okay, send him up. So she hung up the phone. She said, you want to see Mr. So-and-so? He's on the such-and-such floor, office number, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay. And she said, good luck. And I said, okay, thank you. 
I think really she was it was it was feeling sorry for me and the fact that I was ruining her sofa because I was so <laughs> damn wet. Um, but in any event, I went up and I met this guy, and forty five minutes later, I I had a job as one of the assistants to Walter Cronkite on the seven o'clock CBS network news. And so you applied like that same principle coming out here to yeah and to calling norman lear yeah because sometimes you know there's if you saw the movie risky business that tom cruise uh, made tom cruise's career he has a friend named miles and miles his his favorite line in the movie is sometimes you just have to say what the fuck and i just said what the fuck what a cool, dude, what a great... You just did... I mean, you had the right the balance between yeah. being, like, persistent, but also not obnoxious, but yeah. also... You had the rain going for you, so everybody felt uh, a I mean, sorry I, for you. It was right. played that beautifully. I so. mean, it was it was like something out of David Copperfield. I mean, it was just, you know... The book, not a, the magician. Kind not of. Exactly. <laughs> right. It, uh, <laughs> although I, I understand he started juggling naked as well. well so, hey, so that's all the greats do it. Dad, all the greats do it. So I think that that's really... The, forget about the Walt Cronkite and the Norman Lear story. Start juggling naked. That's and it. Who knows where it will take you. So when your biography comes out, can we do the forward and says, you know... We've what seen I him just juggle. Say, just got to say, fuck it. No, or, or, <laughs> That's the whole forward. Yeah. Or, or the title can be what I learned, Juggling Naked. There okay. you go. All right. Yep. What that's, I, actually, that's actually bad. And I'd the buy, forward listen, is. Listen, I'd buy it. that book in five seconds. <laughs> right. Yeah. As long as it's got a blank cover. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Um, so, because this is probably not going to be like a 12-hour podcast. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm taking too much time. No, no. I love that. Um, I, I really want to dive into, I love the fact that that's how you broke in. But how did you su- sustain that now? Because you're on such a high. Okay. Early on in your, I mean, you're talking mid-70s. Right. Early on in your career, you've been on it for a week and a half. You get your first gig. You probably think you got the world by the, you know. Yeah. And by the short that, ears. Yeah. Does that continue? No, it, no, it, did, it okay. did not. Because okay. that's rare from most people I talk a- to. Absolutely. It's usually struggle for 10 years, then something a- breaks. Right. My struggling years, actually, I've had a lot of struggling years, an awful lot. Um, just learning how to walk was a struggle for me. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I grew up at a time when there was not access for disabled people, mm-hmm. so just getting up a flight of stairs was a challenge. So it wasn't, I, I was not unused to adversity. But um, that story that I did for Norman Lear wound up because of a, of a change in what was going on around the world. That story was no longer topical. They wound up not shooting it. Mm-hmm. So that did not happen. And and then I, I did actually have an agent. Mark Lickman was my agent. And I, I went out on pitches, and many of the pitches just didn't happen. And what I realized was, it was that that moment of applause in the elevator for 30 floors was not going to last a lifetime. Right that it really is about how determined are you to get up off of the canvas when you get knocked down. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not how many punches you can take. It's how many times you can get back up knowing that you're going to take more punches. Yeah. That's what it's about. And, and I learned, but I learned the hard way. And I was brash, and I was obnoxious, and I was arrogant, and I burned bridges, and I, 
I made a, f- a fool of myself in, in many sets of circumstances. But then I started to learn. And among the things that I learned was when you're on a show, if you're fortunate enough to get on a show as a staff writer, one of the things that you learn, and, and it's pervasive, it's not just in writing a show, it's, it's all kinds of industries. If you look and if you pay attention, you will see that in every organization there is at some point a vacuum. There's some need that has to be filled. On these shows, what I realized was when, when you get into the writer's room, you spend an awful lot of time just wasting time, just bullshitting, telling jokes. Writers are very funny and they're very smart and it's entertaining to be there. But sooner or later... You gotta do the work. You gotta do the work. Yeah. And I became that guy. I became the one that said, okay, guys, I think I know where our first scene is and we can follow it with this scene and this scene and this thing. I've always had a gift for... Like reeling people in and kind of... Reeling people in and being able to plot out something. So I became known as that guy and began to get that reputation. And little by little, I started to move up into going from story editor to producer to supervising producer to co-exec to executive producer, showrunner. And it was really just staying focused. Also, I realized that to be a good showrunner, mm-hmm. which is what I wanted to be, there were three things that you had to have. One, you had to really, truly have a vision as to what the show is because you're the guiding light. Two, you had to understand the beast. The beast being you've got so many weeks to get the outline done, so many weeks to get the first draft done, so many weeks to get an approved script, so many weeks to prep, so many weeks for production, and then so many weeks for post-production. And while you're doing that, everything else is backing up behind you. So you've got to keep all of the, talk about juggling, you really do have to juggle (laughs) all of these things Mm -hmm. at the same time. And the third ingredient, the third ingredient is to be able to bring out the best in the people that work for you. When I teach a class, on the very first day of class, regardless of whether it's an MFA class or a BFA class or a summer class, on the very first day, I say to these very bright, very ambitious, creative young people, I say, I'm never going to tell you exactly what to write. I'm going to offer you ideas. I'm going to try to justify these ideas. I'll try to convince you of something if I think you're going in the wrong direction. But at the end of the day, it's your name that appears on the script. It's your script. And I won't tell you what to write. That's up to you. Except this one time. This one time, I will ask you to write this one sentence exactly as I dictated. And the sentence is, bring honor to the work. Hmm. Bring honor to the work. Because if you do that, nothing else can hurt you. If you maintain your integrity, if you maintain your discipline, if you don't cheat anybody, if you don't cut corners, even if they don't like what you did, you can say with absolute justification, I brought honor to the work. The screenwriter that I was talking about earlier, I think before the mics were on, Mm -hmm. 
who was a student of mine 15 years ago and now has a major feature coming out at Paramount starring Mark Wahlberg. He sent me an email a week and a half ago, and he said, David, after 14 hard years, a studio is finally producing one of my scripts, and I want to tell you, I'm still trying to bring honor to the work. Bringing honor to the work, do you think that being a showrunner and getting into that level, do you think the years on Madison Avenue doing advertising kind of helped you in a way as far as like the, I don't know, prioritizing and, and learning to pitch and just getting things in order? So I kind of feel like I see a sequence of, of things happening yeah, I, in a certain way. Yeah, a- absolutely. I don't think that any knowledge is ever wasted, ever. And certainly, if you're going to be a, a creative person, if right. you're going to, if you're going to put out what you know to enhance somebody else's life or to tell a story, um, I've done voiceovers. I've done five books on tape for Time Warner, and I've done commercials. Um, the ability to speak publicly has been an enormous asset to me. In advertising, I learned about product, the importance of product. Essentially, when you're selling an episode of a TV show, right? That's you're what I was kind of getting at. Yeah, you're selling a product. Yeah. Um, when I was working for Walter Cronkite, I learned to pay attention to what was going on in the world because you take those events and they become the impetus for stories. Yeah. So there wasn't a single thing that was wasted. And when I came to USC. As an adjunct, I looked around for that vacuum, that thing that I could be identified with. And I realized that what it was, was mentoring. Hmm. That young people desperately want a mentor in the creative arts because it's so amorphous, because you just don't know what to do. Right. Yeah, you know how to write a scene and you learn how to create a story with a beginning and a middle and an end and character arcs and sequences and all of that stuff. But there's so much that's intangible. What do I do when I'm really scared? What do I do when I want to throw in the towel? What do I do when I, when I think this is the best I can do and somebody doesn't like it at all? Yeah. So that's what I became known as. I've mentored students that were never in my class. You might, you might have two right here, two by, right the, here. by the end of this podcast. I also feel like um, anything that you're going to learn at that level of artistry, yeah, you can read a book on right. iron working or working on watches or doing something else, but you usually go do an apprenticeship. You usually learn under someone who's got experience of having done it, not just learned it in a classroom. Like there's, it, it passes from person to person better than just, I read a book on how to format Absolutely. my stuff and here's my script. Yeah, I then mean, what? At, you know, as a rule, you don't, you forget so much of the things that you've read, but you don't forget things that were said to you at a time of desperation yeah. when you needed to hear it. I use metaphors. Oh, can I, do I have time? Yeah, or am I, am yeah, I running yeah. out? No, okay. no, yeah. I, I, I use metaphors a lot when I teach because they're memorable. One of which is when, when I talk about the complexity of a human being, because they, in fact, are what we're writing about. Characters are human. We're writing about the foibles and the complexity and the contradictions of human beings. Mm-hmm. I tell them this story. 
When I was a little boy, as I've mentioned to you, I, I'm a victim of polio. And when I walked, I got in the habit of looking down at the ground a lot because it would be very easy for me to trip over something and fall down. And in Connecticut, where the winters are very cold and the summers can be very hot, um, it plays havoc with physical things like concrete sidewalks. They lift up because they, they expand in the summer, they contract in the winter, and it causes cracks. And so when I was walking t- back and forth to a neighborhood school, I would be looking down so that I wouldn't trip over a raised slab of concrete. One day, and again, I was a little boy. One day I'm walking home, I think, and I'm looking down at the ground, and on this particular slab of concrete is a very, very tiny fissure, a little crack in the cement. And growing up through that crack is a singular blade of grass. Just one blade. That's it. And I remembered that. And I had no idea why I remembered I, Again, I was eight years old, maybe nine. Hmm. Why would I remember that? What the hell reason to remember a blade of grass? Years later, while I'm teaching, I have this epiphany. And in the middle of class, I see this blade of grass in my mind. And I know why I remembered it. Because each of us is like that blade of grass. On the one hand, we're tender, we're delicate. We can very easily be plucked out of the ground, rolled up in a ball, and tossed away, discarded. And yet at the same time, we have the power, as this blade of grass did, to push our way through concrete to find the sunshine. So as you were being this blade of grass, say through late 70s, early 80s, finding your way in the business, learning, becoming a showrunner, how did you deal with like failure? How do you deal with, I guess my question is, you're on a successful show, say it's on for a couple seasons, three seasons, and then the network's like, it's not good enough anymore, and they take you off. Like, what does that do for your, you know, mental state as far as like, you work your ass off to get to this level, you know, you feel like you have a successful product, you love the cast, you love the crew, and then it's like taken away from you. You just, have you learned to just wipe it off your shoulders and on to the next one? Uh, yes and no. I've learned to view it in a very different way. Okay. Um, if, if one thinks about his happiness or her happiness and success as simply being the gig that you have and the title that you have, yeah. you're setting yourself up for a fall because nothing lasts forever. If there's a truth to the universe, it's that the universe is in a constant state of change. It continuously is in motion. The universe, according to all of the legitimate astrophysicists, they all agree that the universe is expanding, which is actually contradictory to what it should be because of gravity. It should be contracting, and yet it's expanding. Energy expands. Energy does not go in reverse. It goes forward. So what do you do? You say to yourself, if you can, and it's, and it's hard. It takes a lot of practice. It takes years of practice. The very atoms, molecules, subatomic particles that comprise the universe comprise you and me in organic matter. Mm-hmm. 
If the law of the universe is to expand, is to keep moving forward, then it is in our nature to move forward. Adversity happens. Meteors fall out of the sky. They burn up. The universe doesn't take its bat and ball and go home. It keeps on going. We keep on going. Because ultimately, we are the events that are happening to us. It isn't that, that these events are us. We are them. Right. And therefore, if, if, if your whole raison d'etre, your whole reason for being is simply your title, your gig, then in, my, empty. Then in yeah. my opinion, you've led a very shallow, yeah, vapid yeah. existence. I, I was out of work for almost six years. And this was after lots and lots of success and making lots of money. And, you know, I had kids. I have a home, a wife. Uh, you know, I mean, real problems. And ultimately, I wound up taking a gig as an adjunct professor at USC. Begrudgingly, because at that time I, I was buying into the notion those that can do, do, those that cannot do, right. teach. Right. <laughs> Little did I know that everything, everything that I had done up to that point was in preparation for this, that this would change my life. That was 18 years ago. 18 years. And I started as an adjunct, really pennies on the dollar. And now I'm a full professor in the top-rated film school in the world. Yeah. And I get, I get letters and emails from students who are doing wonderful things who continue to say, quite literally, you changed my life. Thank you. That, and that, that yeah. also taps the mentorship element that you're talking about. Right. And, that's and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, what, look, we're only here for such a short period of time. I mean, it's the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. I can't believe how old my children are. My children are the same age that I think I am, which makes me think mathematically I must have had them when I was in utero. That's the only <laughs> thing that makes any sense to me. It, it goes by like that, and it's gone. So what is it that, what is it that means anything? Hmm. To me, what means something is leaving this existence, this reality, just a little bit better than the way you found it. And is that how you got involved in being on the board and co-chairing, you know? Oral English School for Deaf. Yeah. My son was born, one of the ironies of my life, one of the struggles, one of the heartbreaks of my life, is that after growing up with a disability, my firstborn child, my son, was born profoundly deaf. And I knew that he would have this disability mm -hmm. for the rest of his life. And yes, he's had a cochlear implant and hearing aids and he is oral and, and he's doing okay. But he's suffered terribly because deafness is a, a terrible disability. People are very impatient with somebody that can't respond immediately right, right. or whose speech pattern sounds more like this than it does the way I'm talking now. And I wanted to help these children and... Uh, I had a connection with Oralingua because of my son. 
And is that in Los Angeles, just for the it, people it, that don't know? It's no longer in existence, but it was in Whittier. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. And my wife is a therapist, uh, which is something I desperately need. And prior to that, she, um, she had a master's degree and taught uh, hearing-impaired children. That's how I met her. She was my son's. My, my, both of my children are from previous marriage. And um, Ellen, my current wife, mm. was... Um, uh, she taught, she was Jeremy, my son Jeremy's first teacher. And it was because of, of her and because of other things that I became involved in the school. And um, once again, you know, you, you give back. I, I was also on the board of... Um, yeah, it's called Media Access. Media yeah, Access, yeah. yeah. Which is part of the Governor's Council on Disability. And, uh, and through that, I got to... Uh, spend an evening and meet uh, and on a dais with Muhammad Ali. Oh, wow. So, you know, th there are little perks yeah. in doing nice things. And just for the, the audience, media access helps people get jobs in film. Yeah, either in front of or behind okay. the camera. With this, the people that have disabilities. disabilities. Yeah. Correct. And but this is an existing thing that goes on correct. now. Okay. Right, this is current, yeah. And, um, you know, it's made a lot of advances, a lot of strides. Um, we're, as a society, I think we're much more accepting of people with disabilities and a belief that, that they can and should be able to do pretty much everything within reason right. that an able-bodied person would do. Just to cite two examples of what I went through. When I was a little boy, my grandmother who really more than anybody else is responsible for me walking. Um, she and my mom and my dad took me to a, a specialist in Boston, which at that time was the mecca of medical research and, and medicine of all kinds. And this specialist looked at me. I think at that time I was in a wheelchair. It was before I could walk. And this specialist, this renowned doctor, said, to my parents and my grandmother, look, he's never going to get out of a wheelchair. He's going to be pretty helpless. He's never going to really have opportunity to have a, a real job. Probably won't get married. The best thing would be to just put him in a home, in a facility where he can be taken care of. And my grandmother said, this immigrant woman who had come from Russia passed through Ellis Island, she said to this doctor, over my dead body, and then she said to me afterwards, she said, you can do anything you set your heart and your mind to. And I proved my nanny Betty right. You were the blade of grass breaking through the concrete. Yeah. I, um, and maybe I'm, I mean, maybe it's obvious, but to me, the deficit you started with or somebody out there might be offended by calling it a deficit, but I, sure, I mean, what the hell else do you want to call yeah, it? I mean, Are you offended? Not at all. Okay, not moving on then. Um, that tr starting out behind the eight ball, the, oh, I have to overcome immediately. Like That to me seems like it instilled a fight in you, which you mentioned before we started rolling about how much fire is in you to, to finish, to see it through. Um, 
because I, I run into people out here, and I've only been out here about 15 years we've been yeah. out here. They had it easy. They they just walked on the, the, the court, or they just got, they were really smart. Good for them. And they they just, right away, things came naturally. And the first big failure, or, oh, I have to struggle really hard because everyone else is as good as me, they quit because they haven't actually haven't, they haven't had to Adversity. develop the resiliency yeah. of failure and being able to get back off the canvas. And what all of those stories that you tell sound there's an element of I've learned how to push through before. A- absolutely. At a I, level you know, of your DNA. Yeah, I I mean I I wouldn't necessarily wish it or advise sure. others to have of it course, because sure. it, it's hard. It's tough. I there was a show, one of the one of the latter shows that I executive produced, and it came down to me and two other applicants. And this was the big meeting, and there were, I don't know, maybe eight people in the room beside me, network people, studio people. And finally, one of them, you know, there was like this elephant in the room. And finally, one of them pointed to the elephant and made reference to the elephant. elephant. And to his credit, he said, look, David, um, you're very impressive, but you obviously have a disability, and uh, this is a big deal, this position. So I have to ask you this question. Uh, you know, in the event of some kind of an emergency, if there's an emergency on the set and you're up in your office, are you physically going to be able to get up and get down to the set with ease? And it was the first time that it was ever put on the table. And I knew that there were times in the past that that was an issue, but people were apprehensive about bringing it up. Nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings. Right. And I thanked him for saying that. I said, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because hmm. I want to tell you a little bit about me. And I proceeded to tell him about the time that I, I rode my two-wheeled bike eight miles because I wanted to get someplace to a special drugstore to buy a comic book that I forced myself to learn how to water ski. I fell down a lot, but I got up on those damn skis. And I said, I'll get there. Don't you worry. I'll get there. I also See, I like that kind of stuff. Yeah. I also think that at, I don't know what age it was, but you mentioned acting and you mentioned voiceover. <laughs> right. Was there a point in your life where you're like, oh, I can also do other things like you do have an amazing voice like I, I can listen to you talk all day and you did the voiceover for one of my favorite books and one of my favorite players in the NBA of all time Larry Bird Larry Bird so like bird how did, yeah, yeah how did that I literally have that book in my apartment right now how did that come about like did you just all of a sudden be like well I can also do because I would I would be standing in line to go into a movie theater and I'd be talking to somebody and the person standing in front of me would turn around and say excuse me but do you do radio? Oh. And that happened a lot. I, I was once dropping off laundry, and I dropped off, you know, cleaning at a, at a laundry place, and the person behind the counter said, you're an actor, right? You do voices, right? And fi- finally, you know, behind every great man, there's a nagging woman. Rolling, <laughs> well, her, rolling her eyes. Yes. <laughs> so Ellen said, so, putts. <laughs> why don't you why don't you do this and, yeah and i I got the name of a um of a voiceover coach, and I put together i spent i don't know a 
couple of thousand dollars back then putting together a, a demo tape mm -hmm. and that got me an agent and then I went on, a, on auditions and you learn you know you can learn something from everybody one of the people that I met was a, a woman that was quite successful at that time doing voiceovers female voiceovers and she once said to me something that I passed on to students about their scripts when their script is rejected it's not bought and she said I go to auditions to be remembered. Not to get the gig, but to be remembered. Because if they remember you, they'll call you back. And it may not be this time, but it'll be something down the road. I've written a lot of scripts that didn't sell, but got me a lot of jobs. Right. Right. And, and, and today you hear, book the room, not the job. Yeah. Because if you got the people in the room that like you. Absolutely. You might not be right. They cast... The, some right. kid you don't look but, like him but two years from now they might call you back absolutely yeah and I've seen it happen again and again I've sat on the other as an executive producer I'm in the final casting sessions for every episode we shoot and, and I will tell you both of you guys and I've told this to other aspiring actors sometimes five people come in and four of those five could do it because the, you know the casting director has already broken it down right. to the five best but one just has the right look it's just that, or or you. Need you're our, you're the third podcast guest that has said the exact same thing, that we had a casting director on, and we had a actor with a forty year career, and they all said the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's never really probably about your ability. No, once you, you get to that level, right? And you just you have to accept that, right? And you have to you know it's that it's that line from Godfather Part Two. This is the business we chose. That's it. Yeah, these are the jokes, folks. And um, William Goldman, great screenwriter, great novelist, wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, among other things. Yeah, Ventures in Screen Trade. I love right, it. that's a good book. Right. Well, he has he had a lot of pithy sayings. One of which is, "Life isn't fair, but it's fairer than death, and it's all we have." And that's it. That's it. That's it. Or Victor Frankel. I can yes. bear any what if I have a why. There's something, something. He said it better I, than that. I, I say that in writing. I say when you write the scene, it's not the what. If it's just the what, then it's nothing more than he did this, she did that, they did the other. It's not the what. It's the why. Mm. It's the why. If you understand the why, the what becomes so much more interesting. Yeah. And I say in terms of writing a scene, dialogue, Oftentimes, it's not what's said that's so memorable. It's what's left unsaid. Are there any scripts that you've written, say, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that you've revisited and have thought about, this might be a good show now? Um, or it didn't work in 1984, but today it might. Yeah, um, <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Oh, um, so I brought it up. No. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I have no. You must be clairvoyant. <laughs> I'm going to call you Claire from that. Perfect. I like that. That's <laughs> <laughs> your new name, Claire. Claire. Um, <laughs> Great. I. Yeah, there is. Does Claire have a job on your show? Yeah. <laughs> because Claire, I'm, I'm also named Claire. Yeah. I love Claire. It's my favorite name. Yeah, it, it really comes down to that. It's all about yeah. me, 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 yeah. me, me. Uh, right. Yes. Yes. Um, 
It's a feature script. Actually, there, there are several feature scripts that I wrote, um, one of which came very, very close to getting made. It was going to be made. Ridley Scott was going to direct it. It was wow. going to be made at Paramount. And then there was a whole change of, uh, of presidents and blah, blah, you know, and they throw out everything and they bring... Anyway, but there's, a, there's another script that's... It's, it's not about my life, but it's the most personal script I've ever written. And... And it's about somebody that I knew, and I write psychological suspense dramas. That's, Amazing. That's what I like to do. And this is kind of like a Chinatown meets um, um, L.A. Confidential, Ooh. and um, both both Academy Award winners. <laughs> and and it's it's right now it's being shopped around by with a producer. So who knows? Very cool. We'll see. We want to be your drivers or your yeah. coffee assistants. Whatever. Get your laundry. Yeah. Claire will be your PA. I'll be Claire one. He'll be Claire, Claire two, two or days. vice versa. Yeah. Or you can be Claire. You can be voyant. Love. <laughs> there Love. you go. Th- that's my second favorite name. <laughs> right. Well, uh, Angelo, is there anything that we've not touched on that you want to bring up that well, maybe, maybe we missed? No, I think I've, I've, I mean, you know, I could tell you more stories, but it would be, it would be, I think, from my perspective, more of the same. But if we're at the close, I, with your permission, I would like to close with the very same thing that I say to all of my students on the very last day of class because I think that that sums up best what I think my, my purpose is mm-hmm. at this point and stage of my life. What I say to them is that, look, we as professors are obligated to teach a certain curriculum. And we pretty much do it well. And for the most part, it, it's certainly reminiscent of, of each other's work. But in addition to that, we bring something special, something unique to the party just as each one of you brings something unique to this classroom. And for a long time, I struggled with a definition of what it was that I think my purpose is. And because I'm an eclectic reader, as it happened, one day I was reading a somewhat esoteric book, and I came across a... Native American allegory. And it seemed to, for me anyway, sum up what it was that I did or strive to do. And it goes like this. Come to the cliff, he said. They said, we are afraid. Come to the cliff, he said. They said, we are afraid come to the cliff they came he pushed them and they flew my obligation my joy is to bring you to the precipice of your fears to give you a little bit of a shove to watch you spread your wings and soar to that place where all of your dreams reside. Well, I don't have anything else to add to that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I kind of already know the answer then from what you just said. If 
Well, maybe I don't. So we, what we do towards the end of all of our podcasts is we ask people, like, as we wrap this up, you know, um, if you hadn't have made it as a screenwriter or producing, and then you've made it very clear, no, this was the thing I had to do, but I just hypothetically, if you changed paths or you decided I didn't want to do that, what would you probably be doing right now? And it's got to be something with people and encouraging them, even if it wasn't screenwriting. You know, it's changed over the years because I think we change over the years. Yes. Yeah. And things that once Hopefully about, for the better. Yeah. Yeah. Things that once upon a time were so very important. I mean, I wanted to be the king of the heap. I wanted to I wanted to make a name for myself. I wanted to I wanted to show them. It was it was really about I'll show you. Mm. It was what my grandmother said, you can do this if you don't give up. If you put your mind and your will to it. Now given the value of what I think I have, it would probably be to serve in some therapeutic endeavor to... Care for people. Care. And to... Continue that mentorship. Yeah, yeah. And to, in part, because I do this all the time, and I, I say to them, right now, right at this very second, you're Okay. You don't have to do anything to prove that. You are okay. So embrace that and go live your life. Well, that's a good positive way to end. Oh, go ahead. I mean, that might be the best answer we've gotten than any of the questions we've asked. So yeah, far. I don't even want to talk. I'll just yeah. be quiet now. I'll um, just play our music and get us I out mean, literally, you coming on here for us has been 30 floors of applause. No, so you. we really appreciate that. I thank you very much. Yeah. Thank um, you. thank you for really being on our show today and, um, well, just for dropping all like, again, yeah. we can read stuff, but it's not the same as getting personal right. stories. Those always translate way better. They all, they're memorable. Just and like to you know said. that someone also has struggled and succeed and struggled and succeed, you know, it, it helps it, us. It helps the listeners. Yeah, it helps. It, out, yeah. It, it, you know, it, it doesn't stop Tony. Right. I mean, it's, this is, this is life. Yep. Life yeah. is it's supposed to be that way. I, I mean, it's if you look at the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, the somebody told me this story. Again, I've never taught a class that I haven't learned from. And one of my students told me about trees. Trees. A tree that has spawned other trees. You know, the, the seeds drop off from the leaves right. or whatever. What they have found is that there is a communication that is probably, I mean, we talk about smartphones and all, all of those things now, but there's a communication that goes back to the very, very beginning. It's, it's fungus that communicates with each other. The roots of those trees go deep into the ground, and then they spread out, and they look for the roots of trees that have spawned from them, and they carry nourishment to those roots hmm. from those trees. Under the ground. You can't Under see it. You can't, you see, can't it. see it. Yeah. So that to me is, we live in a world where it seemingly is so easy to point fingers at others whom we think are different and to blame them and to think that if we obliterated them in some form or fashion, we would be okay. 
We're pointing fingers at ourselves. Yeah, right. Anyway, that's it. David. David, all right, let me do a quick announcement here. Um, all right, for everybody who is watching us on YouTube, uh, we appreciate you. Uh, if you're listening to us on Google Play, um, iTunes, Spotify, Spotify. Uh, appreciate you as well. Please hit that like or subscribe button if you're on YouTube. That makes us very happy. Um, <laughs> and we want to push those subscribers up. Um, David, it's been a pleasure having you on My here. Pleasure. Thank uh, you. We really appreciate you being here today. And um, I, I don't know, maybe we have him back on. We might have to have you come back on. Just talk, I mean, okay. we got stories upon stories. A return engagement. Yeah. Should I, should I bring the bowling pins that I juggle with? Please. <laughs> yes. Please. Um, and, and, and shorts, And the robe. And the robe, yeah. Right. And the long raincoat. Yeah. Yes. Oh, man. All right, everybody. Thank you again yeah. for tuning in to another episode. We will see you next week.